I was praying before the service, and I was, because uh, my mind, I, I know I'm not the only one here that does this, but I'm at work here, and while doing, doing through work, praise and worship, it was during praise and worship, I felt my mind running to doing this and doing that, this has got to be taken care of, and you know, where's this take, you know, why isn't this done, and that sort of thing. And I, and, I, and I know that I need to get my mind on the, on the Lord. And, and the Lord brought back to me a simple story, which most of you are very familiar with. The story of Jesus came to Mary and Martha's house and sat down to teach. And Martha, being a good, good woman, wanted to have food and have everything done just right. And so she was busy in the kitchen preparing. And her sister Mary was just sitting out there at Jesus' feet listening. And, and Martha got indignant about it because she said, don't you care about me? You know, you're not in here helping. You're, you're not in your right place. So instead of getting mad at her sister directly, she went to... This is interesting. She goes to Jesus because she's mad at her sister for Jesus to straighten her sister out. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of us may have done that. <laughs> not just about a sister, but somebody in the body of Christ that you think, you, you think is off track and that you go to the Lord to have them, Him straighten them out. Be careful when you do that. Mary, Martha learned a lesson because instead Jesus corrected her. And He said, Martha, Martha, you're encumbered with so many issues. You're, 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 they're good things, they're not bad, but this is not the time for that. This is the time to sit at the Master's feet and to Listen. And literally in the Greek it says she's chosen the better portion of food, basically. She's chosen the better thing to do. So that's what we're here to do this morning. We're here to sit at the Master's feet. To let all the issues of our life, the things that, that, you know, at work, the things at home, the things that may be waiting for you in the car, the things that, you know, just let them go right now. Because right now there's only one thing important, and that's to sit at the Master's feet and allow Him to teach us and to speak into our lives. Praise the Lord. Well, we're, we're studying, we're talking about praise and worship. And you can go with me to Exodus 25. And while you're going there, I'm going to remind us of the root scripture we have. The base scripture we have is in 1 John chapter 4, where Jesus is, encounters this woman who's sitting, at, who's, he's sitting at a well, and she comes out to draw water. And Jesus has this encounter with her where he says to her, you know, if you knew who I was, you'd ask of me and I would give you living water. And we've used this to, as the base for understanding that every time we come together as the body of Christ, that, that there's an opportunity that we have that so often we're not aware of. She had an opportunity to have an encounter with the living God, that He could do things for her and say things to her and speak into her lives things that she never dreamed of. And all she saw was a man who was thirsty, who wanted something. And he began to lift her eyes off of that and said, if, again, if you knew who I was, you would ask of me. And so the beginning question we looked at is, do we really know who it is we've come to meet with? Do we really know the opportunity we have every time we come here? We're not just coming here to go to church. We're not just coming here to hear good, sing good music. We're not just coming here to hear a, a nice message. We're not coming here to learn more and to grow more. That's good. That's all fine. And we're doing those things. But there's an opportunity that's far greater than that. Every time we come together collectively, we have an opportunity to sit and to be in the presence, the presence, the tangible presence of the creator of the universe who knows everything and can do anything. And we miss it over and over and over again because we don't recognize our eyes are on the wrong things. And her eyes were on the water. Her eyes were on the, what she could see he was. Her eyes were not on, her inner eyes were not on who, on the potential that he had for her. And so we begun to look at that and we looked at how he went back into her life and he, he corrected some things in her life. He dealt with some issues in her life to prepare for what he was calling her to. And then the section of scripture we've read before ends with the discussion of worship. And, and the part we're looking at now is she talks about worship and Jesus ends by saying, the time is coming and now is when, when those who worship him will worship him not in spirit, not in, on this mountain or on the mountain in Jerusalem, but they'll be true worshipers for true worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth. And then he goes on, and this is what we're looking at right now, for such the Father desires or longs. So what we're seeing is this idea of worship 
is not something we come in and initiate with God. It's a desire that God has for us. It's a longing to be with us. And I told you the example of my granddaughter, who just, my grandkids just love being with their grandparents. And how when they're with us and spend the night, even a few weeks ago, you know, Anita wakes up in the morning and there's her granddaughter right there, just waiting for her grandmother to wake up so she can be with her. And to realize that every time we come here together, say, well, I can do this. I do this in my home. You know, we can do this. You know, I pray. You know, I spend time every morning. I have a place of prayer in my house I go to, and my wife does. And I talk to God throughout the day. But there's something about the body coming collectively together. There's something about the body coming collectively together that has a greater power, a greater draw, a greater influence, a greater opportunity. This is why the Bible tells us in Hebrews 10 to not forsake the assembling together. Yes, you can sit and watch, watch, watch this on television on Sunday morning. You can do that, but you're going to miss the collective experience. You're going to miss the that's like that. You're going to miss the joining together of the body and the greater unity of the body and the greater strength of the body. But also, that's where God's presence will show up in a level that's beyond what He can show up in your own individual experience with Him, because it's the body coming together, pulling together on Him. Which is why corporate prayer is so powerful and corporate prayer is so important. It's the body coming together, crying out to Him. The body coming together of one accord. And if you look in the New Testament, that's when the dramatic things happen. It didn't when they prayed in their own prayer closet, those were, that was good, but it's when they came together to pray. That's when the Spirit of God moved in ways beyond what He did at home. So that's why this is so important. So we've gone back, we've begun to, to really renew our mind and understand what God says about Himself, because this Bible is in part for God to reveal to us things about Him, about His heart, His desire, what He's really like. For all of us, we're raised in churches or in homes or schools where you were given some idea of what God was like. You may have been given an idea that there was no God, but that's some idea. We've all been indoctrinated with some understanding of what God is like, and God has given us a book here to tell us what he wants us to know about him, what he wants us to know about him. So one of the things he wants us to know about him is his desire for us, his desire to be here, to be among us. So we went back and we looked in Genesis and we saw when God created man, the idea for creating man was so that he could be with him, fellowship with him, be in communion with him, spend time together with him, interact with him, and he did it with him face to face as I'm looking at you and you're looking at me. And of course, then they rebelled against God. They disobeyed Him and they sinned. And it created this incredible gulf, which is part of what we're looking at, that separated man from them, from from God. And the problem is God is a holy, a righteous God, absolutely holy. And sin is what separates us. It doesn't separate us a little bit. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. When Satan fell from heaven, he didn't fall a little bit. He fell all the way. He fell all the way. And you and I were born into our life into a fallen state, a rebellious state, which means, and all you've got to do is be around a two-year-old for a little while and you'll know what that's like. No, I want to do what I want to do. No, no, no. It's, it's me, me, me. It's all about me. That's that fallen nature in our flesh that, that when we grow older and become aware of it, that God has to deal with it. And that in, in order to restore that relationship or have that relationship with us, that's the issue that has to be dealt with. And that's why Jesus came. And we're going to see that more as we go through this. So we saw that, that everything that God does in the Bible from that point of that fall on is to restore God's ability to legally be among His people. And we looked last week at you know, why that's a problem because God's, God is righteousness. God is holiness. And holiness and any unrighteousness cannot dwell together. And we use the example of light and darkness. They cannot dwell together. And so when you turn on your light switch, the dark immediately goes away. Why? Because the light is infinitely more powerful than the darkness. Holiness is infinitely more powerful than unrighteousness. So if God were literally to appear among an unrighteous people, the unrighteousness gets immediately judged, and who the unrighteousness is in dies. Immediately. Because they can't stand together. And so God has this problem. He wants to be among a people because He loves us, but sin creates the problem so that if God physically manifests to us, we die on the spot. And so God has to take us through a series of preparations. And so we've looked at the Old Testament as a series, among other things. It's a study of different ways that God began to prepare His people so that He could be among them. And so we saw the first thing He did is He chose a people for Himself. And He started with a man named Abram, and He created a nation out of this man. 
And then he brought them down into Egypt to, be, to provide for them during a famine. And then he brought them supernaturally out and he put them under a leader named Moses who we're, gonna, who we're looking at and brought them... He, his will was to take them from the bondage of Egypt into a land that he promised to them, a land of great blessing, a great prosperity, a great provision, which God would be their king. That's what God wanted to do. He wanted to be their king. He didn't want them to have a man as a king. He wanted to be their king. And understand this. One of the principles of the Bible is that the, that the prosperity of the people is determined by the righteousness of their leader. I'm not going to get off politically on that. But I want you to say the opportunity that they had was to have God as their king, as their leader. And God's will was to do this so that other peoples of the world could find out what God was like by the way he related to people. And that's what God wants to do in us. He wants to, us, the world to know what he's like by the relationship that you and I have with him. And so that's why God called them out. That's why God pro provided for them. That's why God blessed them. That's why God protected them. But they rebelled against him. He brought them out. And to go to get into the promised land, they had to go through a place called the wilderness. And the, the, the plan was it could have been done in just a matter of weeks, but God knew his people. And I don't know about you, but that comforts me. God knew his people and said, said I, I know that if I take them by the short route, they're going to see the Canaanites. They're going to get afraid of them, and they're going to run back into Egypt. So I can't take them by the easy route. So I believe there's things in our life God could take us through much easier, but he knows us well enough that if we go that way, there's a trap there for us somewhere. So he may have to take us through a longer, more difficult route because his goal is to get us there, not get us there easily and quickly. We live in an age where everybody wants to do things easily and quickly. <clears throat> but God's ways often aren't that way, but his way will get us there. So there we need to trust him. <clears throat> and so he brings about to the, out to the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai and God comes down on the mountain in Exodus 19 we looked at that God appears to them and says bring them out prepare them bring them out after three days and I'm going to come down on that mountain and I'm going to display myself not in all of his glory but he was going to display himself in his mightiness his thunder and the power and the lightning and so he did he came down on the mountain the mountain shook the ground shook and they saw fire and lightning and they ran away and said Moses you go talk to him and tell us what he said and we'll do it and God calls Moses back up on the mountain and gives him the Ten Commandments. Then gives him some other instructions of what they're to do. Then he tells them to come down and bring some of the leaders up at the base of the mountain and he calls and they could see the feet of God on the top of the mountain. It says they saw the, the ground under him so it wasn't the ground of Mount Sinai. It was like fine sapphire, clear. And it says it was heavenly-like. And they could see his feet And then God called Moses up into the cloud and we talked about last time how God called him into a cloud and, and he sat there for six days and heard nothing. And on the seventh day God spoke to him. And we saw, and that's in chapter 25. We're going to pick up here. He tells him to take an offering of the things that the Egyptians had given them. In verse 8 he says, Let them make for me a sanctuary, a dwelling place, that I may dwell among them. So God is going to give Moses instructions for constructing something we're talking about out in the wilderness out in the desert that God wants to use so he can come down as indwell or have a sanctuary where he can live among his people and we began to look at that last week we began to look at what that was like and it's called the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness and it's a place well I'm going to begin to show you some of these slides Go back over some of the things. Share a minute ago. There we go. And we began to look at this. This obviously nobody knows what it looks like because there were no cameras there. CNN wasn't there taking pictures. <laughs> but what we have, we have in the Word of God what, what God told Moses to do. And it's a courtyard. It's a courtyard that is about 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. 
It's surrounded by a, a linen curtain. That's the white that you see. That linen represents flesh. All the materials in this mean something spiritually, and, and we'll talk a little bit about them. If you really want to know more about it, there's a course going on. It's too late now to get into it this time called On the Tabernacle in School of Ministry, but there's a book that I've written, and there are other books you can get on it to explain what these things mean. And, and the, the, the linen curtain, it was just that. It was those, the pillars that you see were, were made of acacia wood covered with brass, bronze. And then there were poles strung between them, and over those poles were draped this white linen curtain. Linen represents man's flesh. And it was a barrier because it kept the people of the, it kept the, people of the, of the, of the, of the nation of Israel outside of this. Only the priests could go in and the tribe of, tribe of Levite could go in there. You see in the front, there are about four panels that are not white. Those are made of a special material I'll talk about a little later on. That's a gateway. Most likely that was in front by a few feet so that they could walk around it. And they would bring their animals. Those animals would be in, for a sacrifice. They'd be inspected at that gate. Then they'd be brought in there, and that first thing you see with the smoke coming out of it is the brazen altar or, or brass fire pit, it was called. And on that, there was 24 hours a day sacrifices of animals being offered up for their sins. And we talked about that last week. I'm not going to go on. That represents the cross. The intensity of what was going on in there represents the intensity of Christ's suffering on the cross. And notice the smoke is going up to heaven. It was aimed upwards. The next thing you see behind it is the laver. That's a brass, also made of wood, that brass bowl, which contained water in it. And the priests would go from that messy sacrifice and wash their hands before they would go into what we're going to talk about today. And on, in that all in there, it was water, but the base of that, the bottom of that was lined with, with mirrors. So, and we've talked about what that represents. That represents the washing of the water of the Word. So the priests would come and they would wash in this, but as they washed in it, they would be looking into it. And of course, the, the bottom was a mirror and the mirror would shine their reflection back to them, but it shined it through the water. And we talked last week about the mirror in your home reflects back at you exactly what you are, what you put in front of it. But water represents the Word. And we saw last week through two scriptures, I'm not going to go back over, where what this is teaching us is when you look into the Word of God, the Word of God is a mirror also. But this is a mirror that's different than the mirror in your bathroom. This mirror shines back at you how God sees you, how God has made you. And the principle here is as the more you look into this mirror, what this mirror has the power to transform you into what it says you are and change who you are. And all of this was preparation. So the, the sacrifice was the payment of their sin. That represents the cross. The labor was to cleanse them, to prepare them to go on into what was going to go on inside this tent that we're going to look at today. So we've seen that we've come to the cross. If you've come to Christ, you've been cleaned up. We saw in, 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 first, in excuse me, John chapter 13, Jesus. we have Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And we talked about that, that he comes to Peter. And Peter says, I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash you, you have no place with me. In other words, if you don't come to the cross, if I don't clean you up, you have no place in the kingdom of God. You can't get into the kingdom of God unless I clean you. You can't clean yourself, and you're not so unworthy that I can't clean you. But he said, I've already cleaned you. I've just come to wash your feet. And Peter says, well, if, 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 if you've got to wash me, then wash me all over. And he says, I don't need to do that again. Once I've done that, once you've come to Christ, you don't need to be cleansed inside all over again. What you need to do is have your feet washed sometimes because the feet represented their walk in daily life. In the process of walking, they'd get their feet dirty because they had open sandals. And so these, these, these um, disciples, because this was a rented room, they came into this room, their feet were dirty, they had shared the, 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 the Lord's table together, but in a, in a house you would normally have a servant whose job was to wash those feet when they came in. But because this was rented, there was no servant there, they were just a bowl in water to, for somebody to perform it, and the disciples were too proud to do that for themselves or for each other. So the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel gets up and does that for them. And he's signifying that he came to serve them. And Peter wants to receive something beyond that. And he says, no, no, all, once you've been cleaned, all you need to do is have me wash your feet, which is to remove the filth that we get in our lives as we go through our daily lives, the washing of the water of the Word. Now, that was to prepare them. All of this was preparation. 
for what was to go on inside that tent. Now notice the difference because everything in the courtyard is exposed to the elements. It's open. So the, it can rain on it. The clouds can come over and it can rain. Birds can fly over. Anything can happen. It's exposed to the outside. And this represents what goes on in so many Christians' lives. We go to the cross, we're saved. We go to the Word, we get filled up with the Word of who we are. We know who we are, but we live our life with God out in the open exposure, exposed to the elements of the world. But there's another place that God had designed there, and that's where we're going to take a look. The actual tabernacle is that tent that you see towards the back. I'm going to skip over. This is kind of a schematic looking down at this whole thing. We may come back to it. And I want to skip this next one. We're going to go to this first one. Okay. This is kind of a, 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 an artist's view or a picture of what that was designed to be like. It was a tent that was about 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. And just as the courtyard had a dirt floor, this also had a dirt floor. But there's where the similarity changes. The courtyard was, had a border that was made of brass pillars, or wooden, wood covered with brass, and, and draped between it the linen cloth. Very insubstantial. If somebody decided they wanted to run through that, they could have run through that. This is very different. The walls of this are also made of boards of acacia wood, but instead of being covered with brass, because remember what brass represents? We taught you last week. Brass represents in the Old Testament sin that's been judged. This wooden, these wooden planks are covered with pure gold. Gold in the Bible represents deity. It represents God because it is the high, most, valuable, most valuable mineral material that we have. So now you have the wood covered with gold. Wood also represents our humanity. So this represents Christ, a man, but also God. And it's covered with cloths. There's five of them. I'm not going to go through all five of them. I'll talk to you about the innermost one and the outermost one. The outermost one was badger skin, which represents, which is a very hard, uh, durable uh, uh, skin to protect it from the outer elements. It's also very common. So that if you looked at this from the outside and you could see it, it would look like just a common tent. And if you looked at Christ, just as He was on the outside, He looked like just an ordinary man. That's what the woman at the well, the mistake she made, because she was only looking at Him from the outside. But the innermost layer of this is made of a very fine material that has all different color cloths interwoven which mean different things. There's scarlet which represents the, the price that was paid. There's blue or purple which represents royalty. And what makes this really distinctive is one of the threads that's woven in among this is a thread of gold. Not colored gold. It is literally gold that has been rolled out into a fine thread and woven among it. And that's what that gate at the front represents. But if you got inside this, what you would see, if you could see, and we'll talk about that in a moment, you would see the walls were all gold. The floor that you stood on was dirt, but the covering that you saw from the inside were this beautiful purple Beautiful colored thing with gold interlaced in it. All right, we'll, we'll show the significance of that a, a little bit more in a, in, a, in a moment or so. It had two rooms. And we'll go back now to this diagram. Whoops. So we're looking down on it here. We're looking at this rectangle that's inside the rectangle. On the right-hand side, you see the dotted line. That represents that, that gate that we've talked about. So the little box is the, is the brass altar, the brazen altar. The little circle is the laver. And that was in, the, the instructions were to put that between the brass altar, the, the, the brazen altar, and the gate. So the, 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 wor the Word, God's ordained the Word to be the cross. Between the, when you get saved, now you need to get into the Word. 
in order to understand who you are and to prepare you to come into what's on the inside of this. And so there's this gate. A gate always is a sign that there's a, that there's a requirement to pass it. A gate is a sign that not anybody can come in. So your front door in your house is not only just to keep the heat inside, but it also, for anybody who comes to the door, that means it's not just open. So if you're having an open house, this time you, you might leave the door open. Because that means anybody that wants to can just walk in. But when the door's closed, and we learned this in this course on Renewing the Mind, that means you're saying, I have a choice over who gets in and who doesn't. Now, you might put on the outside, you know, who's welcome? Well, that's what this is. Because of what those cloths, those fabrics represented, they signified who was qualified to go on the inside of it. And basically, it consists of all the qualities of Christ. His royalty, His humanity, His holiness, His, his, his ultimate value. And again, I don't want to go through all the details, but just enough for you to understand what it was. So that, and, and for here, we're going to see that not just the Levites worked in the outer courtyard, but they couldn't go in there. Only the priests. The priests consisted of Aaron, the high priest, and then his successors, and his sons. They wore special garments, and then Moses could go in any time. We talked about why he could go in any time. But we're talking about the priests right now. They were the only ones that could go inside this tabernacle. And so, now we're going to begin to look at this. I hope you can read a little bit what's in it. I'm just explaining it to you here. That laver's in the wrong place. But with a diagram ahead, I couldn't move it. Inside this first room, this first room is known as the holy place. The holy place. And it represents fellowship and communion with God, interacting with God. That word fellowship, you know, it's a, it's a church word. And, and a lot of times we really, we misuse it or we use a, a narrow meaning of it. So I want to try to, I'm going to use other words for it that are more relatable because it's, you know, in the church, we tend to say that it's everything from going to get a bite to eat after church. Well, let's go have fellowship with one another. So in our minds, that means we're going to go to a restaurant somewhere. We're going to eat together. And that's what took place in there. We'll explain to that. There's a spiritual basis to that. But the word in the New Testament is koinonia, which means far more than sitting down and eating together. It means sharing something together. So in terms of the eating, it's sharing a meal together and the experience of one another's company together. So what's to go on in here is, is, is literally to be in the presence of God, together in the presence of God. And there's three items that are in there. And they're all made of acacia wood covered with gold. Everything outside was acacia wood covered with brass. Judge sin. But in here, the sin's been judged. This is not about the judgment of sin. This is about an interaction with the God, which is what we're talking about. And God had to design this and tell them to create it and provide for it so He could do this with them. This was God's idea again, not man's idea. All right. Now, let's go to um, Exodus 29. And we'll see God's purpose for this. Oh, let's pick up in... Uh, verse 42. And this is the sacrifice out at the burnt altar. And this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting before the Lord, where I meet with you to speak with you. So God's saying, I've set these sacrifices up and I've, I've ordered you to build this tent and this tabernacle structure so that I can come and meet with you and speak with you. Verse 43, There I will meet with the children of Israel. The tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. What's going to set this apart, what's going to make this acceptable, is the presence of my glory there. 
So I will consecrate the tabernacle of the meeting and the altar, and I will consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. See, God doesn't want to be our God from a distance. God doesn't want to be our God who's a distant God and He doesn't know us and we don't know Him. His heart's passion is to be among His people. His heart's passion is to be among His children. To enjoy them. To be with them and for them to learn of Him and to enjoy Him and for Him to teach them and instruct them and for them to be blessed by His presence. And look at verse 46. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. And I am the Lord their God. God wants to dwell with His tangible presence here so that we know who it is that brought us out of the world. Egypt represents the world, the bondage that you and I were born into. He wants us to know Him at another level so we know who it is that saved us. And the more you know who it is that saved you and how more you know how real he is, the more you want to praise him and the more you want to worship him. David didn't write all those psalms because it was his assignment. He wrote out of those psalms out of the fullness of his heart because he knew who his God was. He knew what his God had done for him. All right. Now, this outer room is called the holy place. It has that entrance we've talked about. When you walk inside... On the left-hand side, there's three items in here. The first on the left-hand side is called the table of showbread, S-H-E-W-B-R-E-A-D. The word showbread actually means presence or face of. So this is the bread of the presence or the bread of the face of. And it represents eating in the presence of God. And on this this, this table was made, again, of acacia wood covered with pure gold. And there were... Let me go on and show you. Well, here's a picture, kind of. It's kind of hard to see because of the small detail of the two rooms. I'll show you the next one. This is the black and white rendering of the table. And there were 12... It was, it was, there were four legs to it. There was a, there was a filigree um, type of uh, a border around both the top of it and the base that it sat on. And on that, they were to place 12 loaves of unleavened bread in, in two rows of six. And every Sabbath, Aaron and his sons, the priests, would come in and would eat the bread that was there and replace it with new bread. And this represents literally eating with God, sitting down to have a meal with Him. This represents enjoying God's presence with a meal with Him. And the unleavened bread is always significant because the leaven represents sin, especially the sin of pride. Because what does pride do? Pride inflates, it gives more, it gives more volume, but no more substance. Pride puffs up. It makes you think you're bigger than you are and have more to you than you are and all you've done is taken what you were and just spread it out. Oh, you've, you've watered it down. You've blown it up. You've filled it with hot air. <laughs> and so to be in God's presence, the food of God's presence can always in the Old Testament has to have that element removed from it so that it's just the pure bread. Now keep in mind, Here's a color picture of what it may have looked like. Keep in mind, while they're doing... There are no chairs in there, by the way. There's no chairs in any of this. And the reason there are no chairs is that the significance of a chair is you sit down when the job's done. When the job's done, you sit down. And everything in here was designed to communicate to them, this didn't finish the job. There was always a continual need for the sacrifices. And you see this in Hebrews. I hope you've begun to read Hebrews 9, 10, and 11. Especially 9 and 10. 8, 9, and 10 if you want to do that. Because it talks about that, that, that there was, because this sacrifice was done by the blood of bulls and goats, there was not enough value in the life of bulls and goats to take care of the sin problem. It was just enough to wash it away temporarily. 
So you'd get yesterday's sin taken care of, and now you've got to start all over again today. And the constant smell of animals burning, the fact that there were no chairs to sit down in, was a significant, was, was reminding them that this was an ongoing thing. It was never going to be taken care of for them. It was pointing them to the day when the Son of God would be offered, not on a brazen altar, but on the altar of sacrifice of the cross. And His blood was worth enough to pay for our sins once and for all. So when He was done, the Bible says He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Because the work's been done. He has a chair next to the Father to sit down in because He's finished the work until His enemy's been made His footstool and that's our assignment. So on the left-hand high side, you had this, which... Re- now, there, it signifies eating in God's presence. I'm going to go back a minute. Because in this diagram, it's out here. Well, look here. It's on the left-hand side as you come in. But notice at the extreme left-hand side of this first room, there's another curtain. There's another wall there. So in this outer room, they can't see into that room. And we're going to see in a minute, that's where God's presence was. So although they're eating in the presence of God, they're not actually in His presence. There's a barrier, there's a wall, it's a veil that's separating them from the actual presence of God. So this represents to them, but that veil still signifies to them, it's not done. We're not actually in His presence, we're just kind of near His presence. Okay. Now, go back here again. On the, that's on the right-hand side. On the left-hand side, I think I said it backwards. The table of showbread's on the north side. It's on the, it's on the right-hand side as you come in the door. On the left-hand side is a golden candlestick. And I'll come to... A, here, there's just a picture of it. A little hard to see. Okay. Now, whereas everything else in here, with one exception is made of wood, acacia wood, covered with pure gold. This is an exception. This is made out of one piece of pure gold that's hammered into this shape. I went back and did some research, and it's, it's, it is, it's, its weight in pounds would be around 25 pounds of pure gold. Now remember gold represents deity. This could not be formed by pouring molten gold into a form. Why? Because then you would be having God fit into a mold that we made. So you had to take the natural material that God made and beat it with the skill of a highly skilled man named Bezalel, who was anointed by God to form this. It has six branches to it, three on each side. And each of those branches has three segments. I'm not going to go into what they all mean. At the end of each is a bowl, which, is a, which, is a, which was, we burned candles, but they had a, a, a vessel with oil in it and a wick that went down into it. And then there's a center one, which also has this. So there's seven lamps burning there. Seven is the number of completion. It's God's number. And this lamp burned all the time this camp was set up. You may read some books that say that this represents Christ who's the light of the world. But here's why I don't believe that's so. Because that light wasn't shining out into the world. It was only shining in this room. Everything in this tabernacle represents Christ in some way. I believe what this represents, and if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I quote this all the time, but I want you to see it. Because what's going on in here? Now, just picture yourself in this room. Oh, I can't imagine what this must have been like. You go into this room out of the bright sun of the Sinai Peninsula. You walk into this room, and the walls 
are pure gold. Above you is this gorgeous embroidered tapestry that has pure gold thread woven in among it. And the, listen carefully, this is so important. The only thing that allows you to see what's in this room is this candlestick. What's in this room exists, but the only way you can know it and participate in it and appreciate it is because that candle, the light from that candlestick illuminates this room. Now let me read this. Verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Eye has not seen, so you can't see. Nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart all that God has prepared for those who love Him. So if He's prepared them, they're there. But our eyes haven't seen them yet, and our ears haven't heard them yet, and it hasn't entered into our hearts what it is for us, but they've been prepared. Kind of like the things in this room are already there for them, but until this thing is lit, they can't see it. So they don't know it to enjoy it. But God has revealed them to us. How? Through His Spirit. For His Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. What man knows the things of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Look at verse 12. Now we've received not the Spirit that's out there in the courtyard in the world, but we have received the Spirit that's from God. Why? That we might know, see, experience the things that have been freely given to us by God. Go down to verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. This is why it's so important to be filled with the Spirit. Because otherwise you're trying to understand the things of God through your mind. And the mind can understand some things, but it cannot understand the real depth and the power of God that's revealed to us by the Spirit. And although you're born again and have the Spirit of God in you, He can do it to a measure. But to be filled with the Spirit is to release Him in your life and to give Him full reign to show you whatever He wants to do and to do in you whatever He wants to do. He cannot know them because they're spiritually discerned. And he who is spiritual judges all things, but he himself is judged rightly by no one. So this, the, this, this candlestick represents the anointing of the Spirit to reveal to us what God's doing for us. Wow. 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 That's why it's important to be in touch with the Spirit inside of you, to pray in the Spirit regularly, all the time, keeps you in touch with the Spirit. It keeps your awareness of Him, your sensitivity to Him. Because there's things God wants to show you and reveal to you. And we're so carnal in our thinking and our dealing. Why? Because we're still living so much of our life out in that outer courtyard. We're saved. We've got the cross. We've got the Word and we wash in the Word. But there's more, and this is what God's signifying to them and to us. There's more. There's so much more, all that I've really prepared for you. You can't see out there. You've got to come in. You've got to enter in. And this is where worship is involved. This is where prayer is involved. You can't do that out there. You've got to know these things of God. You've got to enter into a relationship in spirit. You've got to worship Him in spirit. And in truth, that's, what, that's the truth of what's there. And you can only see those things, the real things of God by the Spirit. Why? Because God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in Spirit and in truth. There's one other item in there. And, and there's, there's some places you'll read, you'll find it's in this room. Some places you'll read, you'll find it's in the other room. And as I've studied it out, it's not clear which it is. But I'm going to teach it to you. It's in this room. And it's the next thing is an altar. And this is called the altar of incense. And this, this is, a, this is a, a version, a small version of the brazen altar that's on the outside in the courtyard. This is also square. 
This is also made of acacia wood, but as with everything else in here, it is, it is covered with pure gold. And it has poles on it. These poles are so they could carry it when they move from place to place and not touch it with their hands. And so on this altar, they would burn coal. But the coal that was burned on this altar came from the brazen altar. So the high priest would take coal off of the brazen altar, which represents the cross, and he'd bring it into this room, and he would place it on this altar, and he would paste on it a sweet incense, so that as it burned, the heat of that went up through the incense, it it dissolved the incense and released this beautiful fragrance up in the air. Now, go with me to Revelation chapter 5. Oh, we've got to move along. It shouldn't be so hard to find, John. We're looking now into the, by John, the revelation Jesus gave to John into, the, into heaven. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And what is the incense? They are the prayers of the saints. Let's go over to chapter 8. Verse 3. Then another angel having a golden censer, which has coal in it, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints, the golden altar which was before the throne. Now think about it. What is incense? Some of you come from churches where they, uh, you had a priest that would have incense, and it put off an aroma, didn't it? But that aroma goes where? Up. So there was an aroma going up from the brazen altar, but it wasn't sweet-smelling. It was a hideous odor that was going up. But the coal from that, as I was praying this morning, the Lord was saying, you know, what, what, what happens is, remember the, 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 the brazen altar represents the cross. And the church has made two basic errors, I think, in terms of worship. There are generations that have spent all their music, all their songs, is around the cross. And, 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 and that's wonderful. But then in reaction to that, we've had a generation that says, yeah, I know we're saved, but we need to enter into the real worship. And I know Jesus died for us, but we really need to enter the presence of God. And, and, and that's true, but we've done that to such a degree, we, fought, we think we have a right to be there on our own. We've forgotten what it costs to get there. We've forgotten He's a holy God we've come to worship. He's not just our bud, our best bud, that we've come to just kind of hang out with, but He is a holy righteous God. The cross, the only reason you and I can do anything with God is because of the cross. Not just to get saved, but every day. That cross stands today in God's eyes. That blood's still there today in God's eyes because that's what stands in your place. That's what takes your hold, your sin for Him. But... So we've made the mistake, I think, in our generation of saying, yeah, I know I'm saved, but that was good, I was saved, but thank you for that, and now I want to rush into God's presence, and we forget this. And as I was praying this morning, Lord brought, I said, well, I don't want to go back and just hang around the cross either, because so much of the church, other, some, some of the church is still back there. And the Lord says, that's why I put this coal in there. Because the coal isn't a, the coal that they burned as the basis for their worship and prayer came from what? It came from the sacrifice that was made at the altar, which is what allows the priest in here to begin with. So our ability to worship Him, the sweetness of our worship, of our prayer, of our praise, we must always remember that the right to expect God to hear us to receive our worship and praise is only because of the price that was paid on that brazen altar 
on that cross. Only, this is one of the reasons for communion, which we're going to celebrate next week, I believe, is to, to, to remind us that there's a price that was paid, the ultimate price that was paid. So we never forget that, so we become presumptuous. And yet we can't cling to that or we'll never grow in all that's intended to grow with. We'll cling to there as just dirty, rotten sinners, but how can I be a son of God? How can I walk in the right righteousness of God? How can I walk in the authority and power of God if I'm still so conscious of what a terrible person I was before I got saved? We need to know who we are apart from Him, but we're not apart from Him. We need to know who we are apart from Him, but we're not apart from Him. Again, this room is only lit by the candle light that comes from those seven bowls of light of that golden lampstand which represents the Holy Spirit. Behind this altar which filled this room with a sweet presence is another veil or curtain that's also made of that specially embroidered material that represents all the qualities of Christ that has the gold thread in it. And that curtain is a barrier to remind the priest, the high priest, and the other priests, his sons, that they could not just walk in there. Because they could come in here every week, but none of them could go into this other room except the high priest, and only one day a year, because of what's behind that veil. And that's what we're going to look at next week let's pray well next not next week the week after Father we come to you in the name of Jesus and we thank you my God for your grace and your blessing in our lives Father as we study these things help us to understand and to learn that the rights and privileges that we have the freedom that we have to either come and worship you or not come and worship you, to open our Bible or not open our Bible, the freedom of our own free will we have because you gave it to us. And you gave it to us, desiring and hoping with all your heart that we would use it to come to you and to draw near to you. Father, as we study these things that you've taught, given to us through the Old Testament, help us to recognize down in our hearts the incredible privilege we have that we could come and worship you and you would receive our worship and that you would receive our prayers. Father, prepare our hearts for that inner room. Prepare our hearts for that ultimate opportunity that you've given to us. Prepare our hearts for what's already in your heart for us. Father, we thank you for the precious Holy Spirit. We thank you that you've given to him to open our eyes to see all that you have prepared for those who love you. And so, Lord, we again pray with the Apostle Paul that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would truly see the hope of your calling for our life. It's in Christ Jesus. And Father, as we study these things again, use them Use them, Father, to give us understanding that we may begin to walk in what you have given to us to walk in. In Jesus' precious name.